Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you, and uh, as usual, I very much appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's not just because we get to visit Marquette again, although that's a, a big draw. Of course, I grew up here in Marquette. I uh, went to elementary school and high school here. I was sad to see just the other day driving by that my elementary school is no longer an elementary school. So the Whitman Elementary School I, looks to me like it's been uh, rounded up by the university. Uh, but I uh, went to school here, and uh, I feel as if Marquette is really, uh, truly... When people ask a missionary, where are you from, it's always a hard question to answer because there's many ways to answer that. But I'll say, well, if you want to know where I'm really from, from, it's from the UP. And if people know what that means, then you know they're on the in. You know, if they say the, the up, you're from the up, what is that? And uh, then you understand where they're coming from. Um, thank you to your church for allowing uh, me to be here this morning, and my family will be here in the second service as well. We appreciate that, giving up the pulpit, the pastor's I understand that's uh, something to do, and I appreciate that very much. You've had a barrage of whites, it seems, with my next older brother, Joel, who was here recently. Thankfully, you don't get Wes right in a row, too. That would be too much to handle, I think, for one church to have that that quickly. Uh, but it's a joy to be with you. Uh, Tenwick Hospital is where I live and work and have been there for the last... 17 years. Uh, things have changed dramatically at Tenwick in the last years. Uh, things have changed with our family since we first went there in 1992. I went during my training and spent six months there. We went with our 18, our 12-month-old child, Adam, uh, as our only child, and uh, the family has grown. Uh, the, when we finally went as full-time missionaries in 1997, we had three boys, and that has changed as well. And this is a family picture taken recently of our five kids uh, with four boys and one rose among all the thorns in the family. That's Anna, who you'll meet uh, in the second service. She'll be here. The family has changed dramatically, uh, even to the point that our oldest son, Adam, is uh, getting ready to get married in January of this year, a January wedding in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So they're not doing an outdoor service, I, I believe. Uh, but uh, he is marrying a young lady he met in Africa at uh, the boarding school. Her parents are also missionaries in Kenya as well. Uh, so our family has changed uh, significantly. Tenwick Hospital has also changed significantly. It's grown and developed. Uh, a lot of new things going on. There's continually new projects and new things happening at the hospital. Uh, currently, we're seeing about 150 140 to 150,000 patients per year in the outpatient department, admitting about 15,000, doing about 8,000 operations per year. And we're seeing about 3,000 people coming to give their lives to Jesus Christ through the experience that they have at Tenwick Hospital. The Lord can use times of illness, times of difficulty to bring people to him, and we certainly see that there at Tenwick Hospital. Um, we are very committed to training and discipleship, and that's probably the biggest thing that I do at this point in my work. I work with 14 young doctors who are training to be surgeons, and they spend five years with me. That's quite a privilege, isn't it? <laughs> they all fear me a little. I don't know why. My wife says I frighten people. Um, 
but uh, I spend all my time essentially with them taking care of patients day in and day out and night in and night out and uh, discipling them, sharing with them, living the life with them. And then it's been very exciting to see them go on to be the pillars of medicine within Kenya and to be the respected authorities within that whole region and having a real influence for the future. So at Tenwick, we do a lot of training. Uh, we, when we went to Tenwick years ago, it was specifically because I felt that the Lord was calling us to a teaching ministry in medicine. And when I first asked, where can you train surgeons at a level of surgical residency in a Christian environment in the third world, the answer was nowhere. It doesn't exist. Um, but Tenwick was moving in that direction. And the first year we went, we started with an internship program. So following graduation from medical school, every person in Kenya who finishes medical school has to do a one-year internship. So we started with one intern in 1996, and that grew to two rather quickly, and that grew to four, and that grew to eight, and that grew to 12, and that grew to 16. And so we're now training 16 interns per year that spend one year. But then we wanted to go further than that, and we began the family practice training program, and we're now training eight doctors at any given time in family practice. And then we started the surgical program as well, uh, which began in 2008, training surgeons, and we were finally able to get accreditation by the government. And now our trainees are scoring the highest in the country, uh, in the whole country, uh, in their exams at the completion of their training. So we began with two residents in training, and that grew again to four, and that grew to eight, and that grew to 12, and we are now with 14 residents in training. Uh, We've also started an orthopedic program, and we will have six trainees in orthopedic surgery. So that's the group uh, taken last year, and that's the group taken about a month ago at Tenwick Hospital of all the trainees that I work with and the other faculty that are there teaching, and our whole teaching faculty in all departments and residents and students and interns. It turns into a large group ministering to a large bunch of people. We're looking at a few new programs um, I've shifted a lot to uh, cardiothoracic surgery. I still do a lot of general surgery, but I spend a lot of my time in cardiothoracic, and there is no training available in the region for that specialty. So we're looking at starting that in the next couple years, and then nurse anesthesia training. So if you know an anesthesiologist who wants a great job, send him my way or her my way, and I will put them to work starting a training program. As I mentioned, the cardiac surgical program has grown dramatically as well. When I first went to Kenya, I said, we'll never do cardiac surgery here. It's too complex, and we won't have the infrastructure to do this. But I was pushed on and on and on by many people, and it seemed to me the Lord was pushing this as well. And in about 2005, we did the first cardiac case with no cardiac bypass, meaning off-pump or with a heart beating. And there are ways to do certain things which we discovered from old textbooks uh, and did our first case back in that time. And that was our first patient on the day after his surgery. And it seemed the Lord was moving this along. And as I looked into the numbers, there are thousands of people needing heart surgery in Africa, most of them from rheumatic disease, meaning they had strep throat as a child that was not treated appropriately. So most of the patients I operate on with heart disease are in their teens and 20s. 
uh, dying of heart disease and they need valve replacement. Right now at Tenwick, I have 350 people waiting for valve surgery. I have another 1,000 waiting to be screened uh, for valve surgery. So it's a big need, and we progress to uh, bypass uh, and open-heart surgery. And so now we're doing uh, every week many valve repairs and valve replacements and congenital heart surgery on children. And then seeing our trainees, our chief residents, learn how to do heart surgery is a gratifying thing to see our two chief residents here finishing an operation on a heart case uh, on their own is quite a thing. And both of them are now uh, leaders and authorities in their fields in the country. This is one group of children we did a few years ago when we did a congenital uh, heart camp. And then another group. And then this group is just from this past year that we did all these children have had heart surgery within the last week of that photo. So things have grown tremendously um, this is the main point of my message this morning is not finances, uh, but I did want to make you aware of things that are necessary and are needed. Uh, we still do need support for our own family. Now, we've put together a new prayer card, which is in the back, and you can feel free to pick one of those up. If you'd like to be on our mailing list for newsletters and updates, you can do that with the email there. If you'd like to give to our family needs that is there uh, as well. Uh, the other thing, though, is we run this whole training program, and it costs money to do that. Uh, the government does not support that. We raise the funds for that. And I put another prayer card back there. I thought, you know, people praying just for me and my family, why don't they pray for the residents in training? And so you can get to know all the residents here that we are currently training. Uh, if you want to go one step beyond that, I've put together a a little flyer with all the residents who are currently at Tenwick and their email addresses. And you can feel free to email them and let them know you're praying for them. A lot of them do Facebook. Now, I have personally not moved into that step of uh, technology, but a lot of them do. And you can get to know them, let them know you're praying for them, and uh, they would appreciate that, I'm sure. We've run out of space at Tenwick, so we're building a new apartment in our house to house visiting doctors who come. We need funds for that. Our car is getting a little old, and we're planning to replace that next year if we can raise the funds for that. And then we are totally out of housing for residents, uh, and so we're building a new four-story building. Many of you contributed to one we built three years ago. It's full. It's totally full. Every unit is full, and we won't be able to take new residents. So we're building another one, as the Lord allows us. Uh, I've put together a little flyer of what our needs are and how you can give to those if you feel the Lord leading you to do that. And please feel free to avail yourselves of those things in the back. Now this morning, I'd like us to look at a passage of Scripture that is probably very familiar to many people. I've listed all the, the references that you can use um, I am going to use the passage from John this morning, but you can feel free to look at any of those that uh, appeal to you, and you may want to see the differences between them. But a very familiar story from Scripture to see what God has for us. So let us pray as we look into this passage. Father, I thank you for your word, which always ministers to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit be upon our hearts and that the words of Jesus Christ sink deeply into our hearts and change us this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I'm going to read this passage for you that is very familiar from John chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near, and when Jesus looked up, and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the boy sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. And Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed those to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. This miracle of the loaves and the fishes is one of the most well-known. It was certainly the most visible miracle in scriptural times in terms of the number of people who witnessed it. The scripture tells us there were 5,000 men and then women and children in addition to that. So it was probably the most visible miracle. It's the only miracle found in all four Gospels, as I've indicated to you on there. And the miracle begins with a rather overwhelming problem. Now Jesus, you have to understand, and his disciples have come through a very discouraging time. If you back up in the Gospels, for example, if you back up in Matthew, it tells us that immediately before this, Jesus and his disciples were informed that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And they were discouraged. They were filled with sorrow. The disciples probably wondering if that was going to be their fate coming up. And the scripture says Jesus told them, let's go away alone. Let's take some time alone. As many of us like to do, when we face troubles and discouragement, find some time alone. And that's what they were planning to do. They wanted to be left alone. In, in Mark, Jesus said, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. And so they left for Bethsaida by boat. Now, the crowds didn't want this to happen. The crowds would not leave them alone. Jesus was at the peak of his popularity and people followed him, in this case, for 10 miles to be with him. And suddenly he's faced with this enormous problem of 5,000 men and then women and children. It's probably 10 or 20,000 people that he's faced with on this hillside that he is supposed to feed. And I find it interesting when we look at the reaction of Jesus. Jesus knew their motives. I imagine many of the people there were there out of curiosity or they wanted to gawk or they had seen these big miracles and hoped maybe they'd get in on one and catch one. Some were there self-seeking, but there were many there also who wanted to be healed and had a genuine interest in knowing about this Jesus 
And Jesus, it says, took pity upon them. Despite his own need and his own desire to try to be alone, he took pity upon the people. And it makes me wonder, how do we react when these kind of situations arise? How do I react at the end of a long day in the operating room and I've had extra cases added on and I finally come home and it's 8 o'clock at night and it's dark and I get to the front porch and there's three women waiting on the porch with their babies that want to be seen medically. And I say, (laughs) I've just been doing that all day and the hospital's right there. I live about 100 meters from the hospital. I said, go to the hospital and I'll even say to my wife, much like the disciples, I'll say, can you just send them away? (laughs) Just send them to somebody else and let them deal with it. And my wife, who often keeps me in order, will say, you can't send them away. Jesus has brought them here to you. I say, oh, Jesus didn't. They brought themselves, you know. (laughs) Or I come home and Evelyn Tanui is on my front porch. Now, Evelyn is a missionary in northern Kenya. She's a Kenyan lady. Her husband was a chaplain at the hospital. He died of a brain tumor about 10 years ago. And she's continued their work as a family and goes to this very remote part of Kenya, and she'll show up in the night with some patient she's brought. And I'll say, Evelyn, there's other doctors that, you know, you can go to the hospital. No, I want you to see them. I, oh, Lord, do I really have to do this? Can I take pity upon them, as Jesus did, and show the mercy of Christ to them? And then when we see the reaction of the disciples. Now, the reaction of Philip is differently recorded in Scripture. The, the, the Gospels are different. In three Gospels, it says the disciples came to Jesus and suggested that he send them all away. They came and said, let's send these people away since it was late. But in John, Jesus asks Philip directly, where shall we buy bread for these people? And it tells us that he was testing Philip because he already knew what he was going to do. Now, Philip looked at the numbers and he said this is impossible this is clearly impossible where are we going to buy bread for 20,000 people at this time of day sitting by the Sea of Galilee and he said this isn't going to work it's going to take in our numbers he said it would take thirty thousand dollars to give everybody one bite of food how are we going to do that Jesus it wasn't possible Do we react in that way also? When we see situations, perhaps a a church budget, perhaps a family budget, perhaps relationships, which you say, this is not going to work. There's no way this is going to come to any sense of satisfaction or in our duties or maybe in sending three sons to college at once. I've said to my wife, I don't see how this is going to work exactly. Or raising funds for the mission field. We look and we say, this isn't going to pan out. Was it unreasonable for Philip to say this? I imagine I would have been like Philip and said, Lord, this is not going to happen. But John says that Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. So do you see what that means? Jesus did not specifically create the problem. He didn't call this huge mass of people to him. However, he saw a problem, and within that problem, he saw an opportunity to bless the people, to perform a miracle, and to show his glory. And what does this say to us? What did Jesus say to them? He said, you feed them. You 
feed them. This alludes to an important principle that we're going to come back to as we conclude today. You feed them. You do your part despite the overwhelming odds. And we will come back to that. And then we see the reaction of Andrew. Again, in the other Gospels, an individual is not identified, but in the Gospel of John, it's Andrew who speaks up and says, there's a boy with five loaves and two fishes here. Now, why did Andrew introduce this child? Really didn't make much sense. Could Andrew have had some inkling about Jesus' plan? Could he have been cautiously optimistic that maybe God, maybe Jesus, can do something with this. What are your five loaves and two fishes? It says five loaves and two fishes to 5,000 men, women, and children are like what? Put your own analogy in there. Perhaps you'd say, well, it's as my poor speaking ability compared to my church's need for a Sunday school teacher. I have very little to offer, but they have a need And I think the Lord might be wanting me to do this. As my time availability and the need for VBS teachers at Bethel Baptist Church, as my poor ability to show empathy to people in need and people who need to be visited in the hospital, what are your five loaves and fishes? It may be giving towards missions where you say, what is my measly offering going to do for the bigger picture and the bigger need. So what can we learn from this lad? I'd like us to focus on this boy for just a moment. This boy was small and insignificant. You know, he's just mentioned in scripture. Nothing about him. We don't know anything else about him except that a boy offered his five loaves and two fishes. How many other examples do we see in Scripture of God using the weak and small? He took David, the shepherd boy, in the backside of the desert and turned him into the king of Israel and the forebearer of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He took Moses, who couldn't speak well, and had him go before Pharaoh and set his people free. He took Elisha, who had to follow on the heels of Elijah and felt totally unprepared to be the great prophet of Israel. Do you feel small and insignificant? Well, that's good, because God can use you. Secondly, we see that the lad was obedient and generous. How would we have acted if we were the only ones with food? If you were in a crowd of 20,000 and you had a knapsack with your lunch in it, what would you have done with it? I know what I would have done. I would have hidden it. I would have found a rock somewhere and got behind the rock before I opened my lunch. I wouldn't have said, oh, I have something. (laughs) Why? Why would you do that? It's absurd. Why waste what little I have when it can in no way help all these people? There's no way it's going to make a difference. You know, many of my secular American colleagues tell me this all the time when I'm back in the States. They say, why waste your efforts in Africa? You will never never overcome the massive problems of that continent. Why don't you stay here in the U.S. where you can use all your gifts and abilities to their fullest potentials? Do we ever respond that way? The job is so big. How can my own little contribution help? How about in participating in the life of this church? You say, what, what little do I 
the little I have to offer will make no difference in the life of this church. But are you trying to be obedient and generous? Then God can use you. And finally, we see that he gave out of little with incomplete understanding. What Jesus was suggesting did not make sense. This one lunch could not have met the needs of so many. However, this lad gave out of his little without complete understanding. Do you feel you have little to offer and do not understand how God could use the little you have to bring about his miracle? Well, then God can use you. I heard a speaker a few years ago, John Maxwell, speak from this text, and he gave a statement about miracles, and here's his statement. When there is a need sensed by a few, and each individual understands his or her own responsibility, regardless of the odds, and gives his all, then and only then does Jesus work a miracle. Are you close to a miracle today? The boy with his lunch had no idea that he was headed for a miracle. The disciples had no idea that a miracle was coming. In fact, in the Matthew account, it says they told Jesus it was time to stop teaching. Can you imagine? They told Jesus Christ, we've heard enough. It's time to stop teaching. Now, you might be thinking that right now, but I'm not Jesus. Can you imagine sitting before Jesus and saying, oh, we're tired, we've heard enough. (laughs) My goodness. What is required for a miracle? Is it faith? If you have enough faith, God will perform a miracle. There's a lot of preachers out there who will tell you that. There's a lot in Africa. There's one church called the Maximum Miracle Center. It's a chain of churches in Africa. It's like, I think you can get a franchise on it. And uh, the Maximum Miracle Center. If you have enough faith, you'll get a miracle. And the faith usually has to be accompanied by dollars or shillings as well. Is it faith? Do you know there's a lot of miracles in Scripture, this one included, that there was really no faith? Who had faith that Jesus was going to feed all these? None of them really did. They said, send them away. There's many examples in Scripture where faith was not there, but God performed a miracle. What about prayer? If you pray hard enough, God will have a miracle for you. There's examples where people prayed for days and days. Paul said he prayed three times in depth, and God said, no. There's other times where people didn't pray at all and God healed them. No, the only thing that is common to all miracles in Scripture is that they all begin with a problem. Every miracle begins with a problem. So if you have a problem, then that's good news because you are a candidate for a miracle from God. If you have no problem, then a From what I see in Scripture, you can expect no miracles to happen. You see, problems drive us closer to God and make us depend upon them. And then Maxwell says, a need sensed by a few. Do you realize that God does not require a majority? He doesn't require a two-thirds vote in heaven for him to do his work. And he can't be vetoed. 
He doesn't require a majority. Now, this doesn't mean we should not seek the advice and support of others in the problems in our lives, but we need to remember that God is in control. And one man or woman or boy or girl, truly led by the Holy Spirit and surrendered to his will, is a majority. Because, you see, the presence of Jesus changes everything. The disciples had no idea what Jesus was going to do. The problem was not solvable, but one small lad with his lunch with Jesus provided far more than the people needed. See, the addition of Jesus to any situation changes the whole equation completely. My brother Joel, who was here last week, used to, he was in the debate club and loved to do all these math games and things. I did other things usually, but we'd have little arguments growing up, and he loved to talk about what is an infinity plus one. I'd say, well, it's an infinity and one. Say, no, it's infinity. I said, well, you can't be infinity. You can't add one and have. No, it's infinity. We'd go on and on about these stupid little things as kids, you know. But the point here, Jesus plus one person commands the resources of Almighty God. When you add Jesus to you, you have the power of God behind you and within you, and God can work through you. Finally, Maxwell says, each understands his or her responsibility. The disciples presented the problem to Jesus, and then they gave Jesus their solution. Send them away. We often do that too. We say, God, here's the problem. Here's the solution. I'm going to do it. Bless me. Right? Instead of saying, Lord, we have a problem. Would you please show us your power in this problem? God threw the responsibility back to them. He said, you feed them. You do it. It seems that God often does not move until you and I move first. Think about it. Abraham did not receive the blessing of God fully until he put Isaac on the altar. And then God made him the father of all nations. God didn't bless Noah until he had built an ark, 100 years, with no water anywhere, until he had done the action and then God blessed him. God didn't perform a miracle in Daniel's life until he disobeyed the laws of the king and prayed as God asked him to and was put in the lion's den and then God acted. We like to sit down and let God do it and God says, you do it. You feed them. They brought a patient to me about two and a half years ago named Josephine. Josephine had been an orphan. She'd grown up in an orphanage, and now she was working at the orphanage. She was about 30 years old, and she had a huge tumor coming through the front of her forehead. And I biopsied that tumor, and it came back thyroid cancer, which means it's metastatic. It spread from her thyroid to her skull and brain. And I said, there's no hope for this lady. We can't cure this situation. People said, yeah, but all we have to offer is surgery. And we talked and we prayed and we finally decided we would go ahead. And we operated actually two surgeons. I operated on the head and another surgeon operated on the neck and removed the thyroid. Well, I removed all of this tumor and the skull and part of the brain. 
And I said, you know, she'll never see again. This tumor is right around her eyeball. She woke up from her surgery and Josephine could see, which amazed me at that point in time. And then we talked about sending her for radioactive iodine treatment, which is available at one place in the country. We contacted them and they heard her story and they said, no way, she's going to be dead in two months. It's not worth wasting the resource. And the, the orphanage people who were very persistent kept Adam and Adam and finally it's okay okay we'll do it and they gave her that treatment they said she's going to be dead in two months we'll see you this is Josephine two months ago she's two and a half years after surgery she's giving praise to God who's healed her because we the doctors said medically this isn't possible but we will do our part we'll do what we can and leave this to the Lord you see many times we don't want miracles we want magic we want god to snap his fingers and things to happen and god says you feed him and let me bless your work the reason that many of us have not experienced a miracle for so long is that we have forgotten that it involves our own participation maxwell says gives his all you see miracles involve personal responsibility. They brought me a boy named Hillary. Hillary is a boy's name and a, uh, it's usually a boy's name in Kenya, uh, even though it could be a girl's name here. Hillary's 18 years old with rheumatic heart disease and had two valves, his aortic valve and his mitral valve affected. He couldn't go to school any longer. He couldn't work. He could barely walk to the hospital. Uh, he was so weak and so out of breath. And we looked at Hillary and I looked at him with an echocardiogram and his heart seemed so weak. I said, I don't think he'll come through surgery and survive it. We can replace the valves, but we can't replace the heart. We talked, we discussed, we prayed. His father said, please do what you can for my son. I said, you know, this is very high risk. He said, I understand, but we trust in Jesus. He was a believer. I said, all right, we'll do it. We took him to the operating room and we were stopped his heart, went on bypass, replaced the valves, and it was really going very smoothly. And I was thinking, wow, you're doing a great job here. And, and this is really flying along, and we should, maybe we have a chance. Hillary had the biggest heart I've ever seen. His heart was about this big in the middle of his chest from all these years of trouble he'd had. We came off bypass, tried to get his heart started, and he started to fibrillate, meaning disordered contractions which isn't so uncommon, and we shocked his heart. We gave him drugs, and we shocked again, and we shocked again, and again, and again, and again. And I could not get his heart out of fibrillation. I said, all we can do is stop it again. So we stopped his heart and went back on bypass. Now, most times we're on bypass, meaning the time the heart stopped and the machine is pumping is around an hour and a half to two hours at the most. That day we were on bypass for six and a half hours. Stopped it. We checked a lot of different things, did what we could, tried to restart it again, and it fibrillated again. For 45 minutes, it fibrillated. I said, this boy's heart is finished. We stopped his heart one last time, and I went out and actually called a colleague in Florida and gave him the scenario, and he said, I think you've done everything. There's nothing left to be done here. You just have to turn off the machine. I went and found the boy's father and talked to him with a chaplain and said, we've done the very best we can. We've given it our all, and there's nothing more we can do, and I'm going to have to just turn off the machine. And he put his arms around me, and he said, I know God is in control. 
and I know you've done all you can. And we will trust God for Hillary. We went back in, and the technician that I work with every day for the last 18 years said, let's pray again. And I said, well, we've prayed a lot already. <laughs> let's pray again. And we stopped everything, and he prayed. He said, Lord, we know you can save this boy. And I was thinking in my cynical missionary mind, I was thinking, Lord, yeah, I know you can, Lord, but you probably won't, right? I didn't have a lot of faith. And I'm going to turn off the machine and go tell the father that he's died. We turned off that machine and suddenly this boy's heart started beating normally. And it's beating today normally. Hillary is back at work and back at school and he is a testimony to what God can do when we give our all and depend upon God. You see, miracles generally break down in two areas. One is a lack of personal responsibility and commitment, which we've already talked about. But the other is when God asks us to do something that doesn't make sense to us. Like in the scripture when they said, here's this lunch. It makes no sense at all. It's not going to meet the need. When God asks us to do something that doesn't make good sense to us, miracles often break down. How many miracles have we missed in life because God asked us to do something that doesn't make sense, and we reason and plan and analyze instead of just obeying God and doing what he said. This is a bronchoscope set, and I'm going to tell you one final story, which I've told before in this church, but I think it fits this particular message so well. I'm going to share it with you again. This is a very modern bronchoscope, which you can use to get foreign bodies out of the windpipe. They brought me a child, uh, this is now a number of years, six or seven years ago, a two-year-old child who'd been doing really very well uh, until her mother said she started to get trouble breathing while she was playing with a pile of red beans. That's one of their staple foods, and they have piles of them sitting outside to dry. I thought she probably has a foreign body in her airway. They brought her in, and she looked really bad. She looked terrible, as if she were going to stop breathing any second. She was barely conscious, and I talked to the mother who was not a Christian. In fact, her mother was the major brewer of alcohol up in the hills, uh, which is illegal in that area, but that's how she made her money uh, and kept lots of drunks in business in that area. And I said, you know, I wish we had the right tools, which would have been this, but we don't, but we will try our best. This is a really nice set where you can, the tip, uh, there's a telescope that comes right to the tip and you can see exactly what you're grasping. And if you look down a scope, you can see that's what it would look like. You can see exactly where you are. Now, I have one of these now, but I didn't at that time uh, in, in life. And what I had at that time was something like this. Uh, this is a old-fashioned scope, which is basically a rusty metal tube that you shine a light down the end, and it's very difficult to see. And we took Chibet in, and we prepared her, gave her some light sedation, and then put this tube down in her windpipe, and I couldn't see anything at all, nothing. And I grasped blindly with these long grabbers and couldn't get anything out. And as we're working, her oxygen level goes down, and her heart rate goes down, and her heart stops. And we pulled out the scope and gave her CPR and resuscitated 
And then we tried again, the same thing again, and the same result. And then we tried again, and the same result. And finally I said, you know, this is not going to work. There's no way this is going to work. And I said, why don't you wash her chest off while I wash my hands, and we'll try opening her chest. But to get to that spot where the bean is, I knew it would be fruitless. I couldn't get there quickly enough surgically to get it out with her heart stopped to save her. And I thought, this is fruitless. I went out and was washing my hands while they were preparing her. And you know, there's very few times in life I can point to that I feel like God really spoke to me. I mean, spoke directly. I don't know about you, but I mean, for God to speak audibly to you, that particular time I felt like God did. To the point I was standing washing my hands and I looked up, I said, what what do you mean try that again? That's a foolish idea. I I said, God, I mean, you've not been paying attention at all to what we've been doing here because we've tried it and we've done our best and it's not working and that's a stupid idea. And God said to me, you're right, you have tried over and over and you have failed. Now you go back in and do it again and let me do it through you. I said, okay. We went, I walked back in the room and I said, we're going to do the scope again. They had all put it away and they said, that's a bad idea. <laughs> we've, we've already tried that. I said, yeah, I know. I know it's a bad I, But look, I've, I've had a discussion with somebody more senior than you and we are going to do this. I said, okay. We put the scope back in. Now, as I walked in the room, there was a little tool sitting there called a ureteral stone basket. It's used to get kidney stones out. Now, the, the, the usual route you go to get kidney stones out is a little different than the route you go to get these out. But it's a similar kind of a concept. And I don't know why that tool was sitting there, because the only person that would have used it would have been me, and I had not used it at all. But it was sitting out, and I said, why don't we try that? We have nothing to lose here. We put the scope in again, and all I could see was darkness. And I put the basket down, and the heart rate started to drop. And I thought, here we go again. And I opened the basket blindly inside her chest and squeezed it and pulled it out. And in the tip was a little red bean. And her heart rate started to come up, and her oxygen started to come up. And eventually she woke up and sat up looking at us, saying, why does my chest hurt, and who are all these people around me looking at me and the whole operating room now there are about 15 people started to cheer and praise God and they were all cheering and you know it struck me not a single person was cheering for me and I was happy about that they'd all seen me fail they were cheering for God and one of them put it very well he said I'm so glad that God allowed me to be here today to be a part of the miracle he has for this life That girl's mother went on to give her life to Jesus Christ. She went home and smashed up all her stills. I honestly couldn't believe it. I had to go out there myself. I went out two months later, and this lady is in a group of a women's Bible study who said they'd been praying for her for three years, that she would come to know the Lord. And the Lord provided a fellowship for that lady. You see, when it doesn't make sense to us, We often argue and reason and debate instead of just obeying and letting God do his work so that a little girl like Chibet could be saved and her mother could come to know Jesus Christ. What is God asking of you today? 
What difference can your life make for the kingdom? What are your five loaves and two fishes? I would tell them, tell you to give them to the Lord. Is it your money? Is it your time? Is it your vulnerability? Is it perhaps your children that you don't want to give up to the Lord? Give it to the Lord, and he will reward and bless and perform miracles in ways you cannot imagine. Ephesians 3 tells us that the God we are serving is him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. What miracle does God have for you today? Recognize your responsibility and obey God even if it doesn't make sense to you. I'm going to end this morning with one final song, and I'm going to show you a few pictures of some of the miracles and some of the loaves and fishes that we have at Tenwick Hospital. And as I show you these pictures, I ask you to think about what God has in your life. What are your loaves and fishes, and what are the things you need to turn over to the Lord? And I'm going to share one song with you that is very familiar, just a couple of verses, um, and one that you're not familiar with. Uh, one that is a, a uh, Swahili song. My old eyes are trying to find pages here. Uh, I doubt that any of you know this second song, which simply says that who is to be worshipped? None but Jehovah. What do you have to give to Jesus today? What do you have to turn over to him? Give it to him today.
come and see your way Hakunam wingine Wakum wabudu Ilani wewe Jehovah All to Jesus I surrender Make me Savior Holy Blessed say.